If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to go to Isaiah 66, Old Testament prophet Isaiah. If you open your Bible to the middle, you'll probably hit about Psalms, head to your right, a few books, you'll see Isaiah 66. I'll give you a few minutes to get there. For those of you who know that last week, uh, the last few days, uh, well, after service last Sunday, I, I drove to Michigan to be with my parents. My dad just had surgery, and uh, my brother from California and his son came out, and we all met in Michigan and uh, with my other brother, who lives in Michigan, and we spent a week helping my parents, and uh, some, some of you mentioned you were praying, and uh, Dad's doing pretty well. Uh, doctors are pretty encouraged by his progress, and so um, I thank you for that. Uh, I appreciate uh, those prayers and encouragement. It was good to be with them, and we got a lot of work accomplished. As we turn our attention, you know, last, the last few weeks, we've been talking, going through this series called Knowing God, and this is the fifth sermon out of the five that we're going to do. Next week, we're going to begin a study in the book of Acts, and we'll be in there for quite a while, probably until our Advent series, and, and then after that as well, of course. But in the last five weeks, one of the things we talked about is how that God the Father loves you in Christ for all eternity. That was kind of a theme for the first three messages. And then last week, we talked about how that because of a couple characteristics and God's nature... We can thrive rather than have survived in uncertain times. We talked about remembering God's wisdom and remembering God's power enables us to thrive and not just survive uncertainty. What I want to talk about today is we want to talk about uh, how that God has shown uh, something about himself to us here in this text. And it's not only limited to this text, but other places. And one of the things you need to understand about God is that we would not know anything about him unless he chose to reveal himself to us. And so it's a very gracious act. It's a very merciful act that God, the creator of the universe, would uh, take time and, and effort to show us who he is and what he expects so that we might have a relationship with him. Have you ever considered the fact that God was under no obligation to do that? God was under no obligation to reveal who he is and his wants and likes and dislikes and all that. To, he, had, he had no obligation to do that to us. But he did because he desired a relationship and he's a relational God. And so as I think about that, I think about some of the things of maybe what is appealing to us or what do we long for? What do we pay special attention to in our lives? And things like hobbies come to our mind and, you know, like, uh, like cars or something. I remember there was a, in a former church that I served in, there was a, a man that was restoring a GTO and uh, he would spend time each weekend and, and restore that. When he got it finished, it was just a, it was a beautiful car that he spent a lot of time paying special care and attention to and getting the, the her shifter for and uh, welding the, the, uh, the trunk back together because it had rusted so much. And when it was done, it looked like it was brand new. Spent a lot of time in that. There was nothing wrong with that. It was, it was a good hobby for him. Or gardening. I think of people who spend time in their garden and it, it takes attention. It takes, if you're going to have a garden, either a vegetable garden or a flower garden uh, or a plant garden, you're going to have to spay, uh, uh, pay attention to it. You're going to have to care for it. Otherwise, it will not turn out or, you know, various hobbies like that. Or, or family members receive our special attention and care. Uh, 
particularly in times of distress, like, you know, my, my brother flying out from California to be with my parents uh, this last week, and, and us meeting there is, you know, we, we wanted to show honor to our parents and, and care for them, and we all do that, and anyone here watching online, you would do the same thing, because we pay special attention and care to our family. You know, in this text that I want to, I've had you open to in Isaiah 66, I want to show you what God has revealed, what is appealing to him. In verse 1 of Isaiah 66, it says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Did you notice that he says, this is the, the one whom I will look. He talks about the, the temple, and he says that this is going to be built. This is a prophetic passage. He says, this is going to be rebuilt, and, and this is going to be great. But you know what? That, that's not what really captures my attention. That's not really what gives my awe. That's not what really what I want to pay special attention to. And that's what this, this word looks here. It says that the one to whom I will look in verse 2 here, it has the idea of to perceive with attention or to direct your gaze towards it, to look longingly at or to observe with care or pay special attention to. Uh, some of you may remember the story uh, back earlier in the Old Testament of, of Lot and his wife. And they were in the city, the, a very wicked city, and they were told to flee. And angels came and told them they needed to leave the city and, and leave everything behind. And as they were leaving, Lot and, and his wife, they were leaving the city. Lot's wife turned back and looked, the Bible says, and she turned into a pillar of salt and judgment. And you know, it wasn't because she just turned and looked back to see the destruction that was going to happen to the city. It was the same word here that she was longing for that, and she was desiring that, and she wanted that more than what God was telling her to do, and so there was judgment for that. Same word here, that this idea of longing and, and paying special attention to. So if I was going to summarize the sermon in one sentence today, this is what I would summarize, how I would summarize it and, and ask for you to consider as we go throughout this sermon today and then even meditate on throughout the week. And is this that God pays special attention to the humble, contrite, and reverent person. God pays special attention to the humble, the contrite, and the reverent person. And we see this in Isaiah 66 and verse 2. Before I continue on and before I unpack this, let me just pause for a second and, and ask God's enablement as I discuss this text and other texts of Scripture, and then we will continue on. Let me pray and ask for God's blessing. Father, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed that I have the, the awesome privilege of week after week standing before people and opening your word and, and teaching from it. God, it's, it's not a privilege I deserve, um, but you've asked that I do that, and so I pray in these next few minutes that I would be uh, sensitive to your Holy Spirit's leading, God. This is your word. This isn't mine. I, I dare not pretend that this is, this is a, my word or my message that I need to convince people of, but I, wanna do, I do want to take this scripture, and I want to discuss it and, and hopefully clarify and um, help people understand this, but I can only do that through your enabling grace and mercy. And so that's what we're pausing now and asking for. I pray for those listening that, again, you would remove distractions and we'd be able to focus in on this and, and that there'd be good uh, engagement 
over the next few minutes as we look at this text and others. And we want this for your namesake and for your glory, not for our own reputation or pride, but because this pleases you and honors you, and you are worthy of this. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So we're going to unpack this sentence in three points this morning. The first is, as you could probably imagine, that God pays special attention to those with a humble heart. We saw this in verse 2 of Isaiah 66, and he says that he, he wants, he, and he looks at, he gazes at those who are humble. And, and, and this, is, this is a theme that we see all throughout Scripture. This is not something that just pops up once. This is something that the, the Bible is pretty consistent on. If, you, if you're a student of God's Word, you're going to come across this truth multiple times as you you peruse through the, the pages of the Holy Scriptures here. One example is James chapter 4 and verse 6, where uh, James, the apostle, he says, God opposes the proud. And he's actually quoting, he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, now consider that for a minute, that, that, that what is packed into that short little verse is that, that there is a person who God actively opposes. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in that category of someone who God is opposing. And the Bible is very clear who that person is. And it's the proud. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And what is grace? Grace is that favor that we need in order to live. Grace is that, that favor, that blessing that God gives us that we do not deserve. No one deserves it. But yet God is rich in grace. We looked at that a few weeks ago from Ephesians chapter 2. Who God, in his, according to his riches and grace, and his grace is far richer than any debt that our sin can incur. It was one of the things we discovered and we looked at as we looked at that passage. So he gives grace, but who does he give grace to? The Bible makes it very clear. It gives it to the humble. Peter said this in 1 Peter. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. You see, this is the theme that all throughout Scripture is that God has a special connection with, and he desires the people for you and me to be of a humble disposition. Now, that goes against what we want naturally. No one wants naturally to be the humble person. Now, we appreciate humility in other people. But when it's our turn to be humbled, when it's our turn to be in the position of humility, we find in ourselves a natural bent against that. We find a resistance against that because our sin nature that we are born with does not want that. We want pride. We want accolades. We want recognition. But God says that the person that God pays special attention to is the humble. Now, why is that? Why is this such a big deal for God? Well, because pride will always set our hearts, minds, and actions against God. If we allow pride in our lives, if we live lives in a prideful way, it, we are always going to find that it leads our hearts and our actions and our thoughts all against what God has said. And so when God, he knows that, and so this is why he opposes and he uh, resists pride so severely because he knows that our natural inclination is to be against him because pride sets our hearts and minds against him. And an illustration in the scripture of this is a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. You could read about him in the book of Daniel. And 
This is a, a prophet. Um, uh, Daniel was a prophet, and he records the story of this king called Nebuchadnezzar. And, and some of you may be familiar with him and his story, but um, he's looking out. This is a, obviously an artistic representation of, of him looking out over Babylon. One day, uh, he was a very powerful king, and, and he uh, conquered many lands and uh, accumulated great wealth. And one day, uh, the Bible tells us in the book of Daniel that he was looking out over the city of Babylon, and he was amazed at what he had accomplished. And he says, is not this Babylon the city that I have created? And he was relishing the fact that he had done so much and he was just so filled with pride. Now, he had been warned. God had warned him not to be proud. God had warned him not to ha- let his heart be so full of himself and his accomplishments and his ideas and what he wanted. But yet, his heart was full of pride. Some of you may remember the story that God then causes him to lose his mind for a short while, for several years actually, and, and he loses his mind and, and becomes and he acts like an animal, the scripture says, and then one day he's restored back and he repents and, and he is humbled before the Lord. Now, the reason why God does this, the reason why he is so uh, opposed to pride is because it sets our affections, it sets everything against him, and he knows that that is not what's best for us. He knows that that only, uh, uh, that only means harm for us. And so, you see, God, he knows that pain, suffering, and disappointment is the inevitable result of pride. Therefore, in love, he opposes what is most natural to us. You see, this is the reason why he says, I'm going to pay special attention to the one who is humble, is because they are the person that we are working in, that they are receiving grace, and that they are the one who is is submitting to my plan, and and, and the one who we are working together, and the one who that I am blessing, and the one who is not setting his heart against me, because he knows that those of us who de- allow pride in our lives and allow us to live according to our own desires without any regard to God, without any thought of him, he, God knows that that is the inevitable result that it is suffering, pain, and disappointment. And so he says, I'm going to resist that. I'm going to oppose it. It's not because he hates us. It's not because he doesn't love us. Rather, no, it is because he does love us that he opposes the pride in our lives. But it's uncomfortable. And here's what happens. We make the mistake is that when we start feeling God pressed on the pride in our life, we start getting upset because it's uncomfortable. We say, how dare you do that? Instead of realizing that this is the loving hand of God guiding us, we resist him. And we go further down the spiral. This is why God hey, pays special attention to the one who, when God presses on them in this area of pride, they say, you're right, Father, forgive me. You see, God pays special attention to that because that is someone who is in a relationship with him and is responding to his love. And so, first of all, as we looked at this text, that you know, God pays special attention to the humble. But as you continue on, as we look, he says, this is the one whom I will look. He was humble. And then in contrite in spirit. And so secondly, God pays special attention to those with a contrite spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, you know, a good text would be Psalm 51. So let me encourage you to go back to Psalm 51. So take, a, take your Bible and just go back to towards the middle of your, your copy of scriptures there, and you'll see the book of Psalms, and look for Psalm 51. 
this is, uh, David is writing this psalm, and, and we see in the very heading there that this is uh, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had uh, gone into Bathsheba, and what that is referring to, we see this in the book of 2 Samuel, we see that uh, there was a, a time where David, the king, and and he was out on the rooftop again, and, and he saw a woman that was bathing, and uh, he began to, to lust after her, and, and he called uh, for her, and, 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 and he had a relationship with her that was, that was inappropriate and immoral and wrong. Um, and the king did this, and he took advantage of her. And so then what happened is, is, is then she is with child and, and uh, she tells him of this and she's married and her husband is out fighting the battle and he has a problem on his hands. Now the, the mistress is pregnant and so what he does is he calls the general and he says, here's what's going to happen. You need to go to the fiercest part of the battle where, where it's the most dangerous. And you take Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and you need to put him in the front line. And, and here's what you need to do. You, you need to move forward in, in the attack and, and then have a secret signal and call everyone else back and, and leave Uriah out there to die. This is, this is horrible. This is terrible. And then it happens. And so Uriah dies in battle. And this is after... You know, David had some other schemes that he was trying to have that didn't work. And so then he takes Bathsheba as his wife, and they have a child together. Later on, the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells a parable. Tells a parable about a, a poor man who had one lamb. And there was a rich man who had many lambs, and the rich man wanted to take the one, man, the one lamb away from the poor man. And David got angry. He says, how dare he do that? Bring him to me and I will, I will take care of this rich man who has stolen from this poor man. And Nathan utters a very famous phrase in scripture. He says, thou art the man. You are the man. You are the rich man. You have done this. And it is after this when David realizes his terrible sin that he at some point writes Psalm 51. I love Psalm 51. It's, it's a psalm that is kind of in a whole realm of its own in all of Scripture. Uh, the whole book of Psalms is beautiful, of course, but when you get to Psalm 51, you see this, this very personal connection that David had with God. And he says this in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And cast me not away from your presence, and take that your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a, a, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. That will, then you will delight in the right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's a beautiful psalm of repentance and showing a contrite heart that David models for us here after terrible, terrible sin. And I just want to pull out some ideas from this. And, and uh, you know, one of the things you might want to do is, is study this psalm this week and, and pull out elements of repentance that you see here. I'm just going to highlight a few over the next minute here. Uh, first of all, repentance, we see in verse 1, is acknowledging our need for God's mercy. You see, God pays special attention to those with a contrite spirit. What do they look like? Well, here's what we see. is someone who recognizes that they have a need for God's mercy. And so that's the question. Do you live each day understanding that you desperately need the mercy of God? You see, one of the things I fear is I fear that we get so used to this idea of Christianity, or we get so used to the idea of God's forgiveness, or that God is love, and that it almost becomes something that we demand or expect, rather than what we are amazed and moved by. Do you realize that mercy, by definition, is not something that is naturally yours to have? Mercy is a gift of God. And do we live our lives in the light of that, that God's mercy is what we just desperately need? Or do we just expect that, of course, God would love me? No. We said in John 1 in our fight of hers that this is to become a child of God is something that has to be granted to us. It's not something that we deserve. Secondly, repentance is asking for forgiveness. We see this in a few places in chapter, in verse 2, verse 7, verse 10. We see this, that there's times where he went before God and he was said in different ways, please forgive me for my sins. Do you ask God to forgive you for your sins? You have a fight with your spouse and you make up and you get past it. Is there a time where you pray and ask God to forgive you for that fight. You're disrespectful to your parents and they call you on it. And you get in trouble. And you deal with it and you accept the punishment of whatever it is. Do you stop and pray and ask God to forgive you for that sin? You lose your temper at work. And you feel bad about it. But do, do you move past feeling just bad about it? Is there a time where you ask God to forgive you for losing your temper there? You see, this is what a contrite heart is about. It recognizes that its sin is against God and that we need his forgiveness. That all sin, all sin is against God. And we'll see that in the next point here. But do you ask God for forgiveness on a routine basis. For some people, when the moment of their conversion, when they recognize, oh man, if I don't ask God to save me from my sins, I'm going to go to an eternity of hell, and so I don't want that. So I'm going to ask God to forgive me for my sins. I'm going to ask him to save me and take me to heaven. 
And then it stops there. Remember, the person that God pays special attention to is the one of the contrite heart. And that is not just at one moment in time. This is a lifestyle of asking God to forgive us. Repentance is confessing sin. We see this in verses 3 through 5. And there's some phrases here that I just want to briefly talk about real quickly here. Um, And what he's saying here is he says in verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Basically, he's agreeing with God here. And and it's interesting. If you go through the the New Testament, you see verses like uh, uh, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, where it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a wonderful truth, wonderful promise that I hold on to. But that word confess is made up of two words in the original language. And, and basically, it's, it, it's, uh, it means the, the, the same word or to say the same thing as. And so basically, true biblical confession is not just agreeing that you did something wrong. It's agreeing about what it was and why it was wrong. This is why he says here, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, uh, make excuses for it. He doesn't say, well, yeah, I did that but he doesn't uh, minimize it. You see, this is what a contrite heart, the one who God pays special attention to, is someone who says, I know my sin, and I'm going to acknowledge it. And we can do that with boldness because we know of God's love and mercy and forgiveness. You see, if God was a capricious God, if God was an unjust God, we would dare not be honest with our sin before him. We would do everything we could to try to minimize it. But precisely because God is just and because he is loving and he is merciful, we can be bold and honest with our sin confession to him, knowing that he is forgiving, knowing that he is loving. I tell people when they pray, just be honest with God. He knows your heart. And so the person that God pays special attention to is someone who is contrary, someone who is confessing their sins, and that is someone who they understand the effects of their sins. And, 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 and he sees us here and in this text here. He says, I know what, what this is doing, and I know that this is terrible. And, and he says that against Thee and thee only have I sinned. And that, that used to kind of confuse me a little bit because when I would read this in verse 4 and he says that against you only have I sinned, I thought to myself, well, wait a minute here. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? I mean, the, the, he sinned against them too. What about everyone else? What about his nation, the people you're supposed to be a good king towards? Why did he say only against God? Well, the reason why is there's a couple of parts. There's the one that in comparison uh, is far worse against God than anything else, but... You know, when we sin against ourselves, you know, God owns our bodies. And when we sin against the neighbor, the neighbor is made in the image of God. And this is why he says, ultimately, the sin is against you. Because when I sinned against Uriah, I was sinning against an image bearer. I was sinning against you. When I sinned against Bathsheba, I was sinning against you, ultimately, because she was your person. She was someone who you had created for your purposes, and I intruded on that, and I took advantage of her, and I, and, and, and I sinned against you in that. That's what he's saying here. He says, I sinned against you, and he understands the effects of this. And we have to understand that ter- the contrary heart understands is someone who understands that sin is terrible. And, and we forget about that because sin is so appealing. And we forget how terrible it is. But think about it. Sin turned angels into demons, right? Right? 
Okay, the, the demons were not demons until sin came into the world, until they followed uh, a Lucifer and, and, and they sinned against God. Sin uh, removed Adam from paradise. This is a big deal. Uh, sin brought a flood to the entire earth. Sin brought a fiery destruction to Sodom and Gomorrah, like we talked about earlier with Lot and his wife. And sin cost Jesus his life. Sin is a big deal. And this is why he says a broken and contrite heart is someone who I will pay special attention to because they realize the effects of sin. They're not minimizing it. So let me ask you this. Are you minimizing the sin in your life? Or are you recognizing and saying, God, this is, this is not good. This pride, there's no room here because it's moving my heart away from you. This tension with my spouse that I'm just refusing to deal with and refusing to humble my heart and deal with, that's terrible. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cause a lot more effects than I realize. The, the, the pride and selfishness of, that I'm displaying at work. Or is that, well, hey, I'm just trying to get ahead. This is, this is the culture. This is what we do. No, we dare not minimize sin's effects. And then we see in verse 5, he he. He confesses his sin nature. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Then my mother conceived me. He wasn't saying that it was a sinful act that his mother was committing when he was conceived. That's not what he's saying there. What he is saying is that when he was born, when he was conceived, when his life began, it was a sin nature. He was born into a sinful world and with a sin nature. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm confessing that in my heart, I am sinful. And this is that contrite heart that God pays special attention to. And so repentance is acknowledging our need for God's mercy. It's asking for forgiveness and it's confessing our sins. And finally, it's worship. We see this in verse six. He says he delights in truth. We see in verses 13 through 17, we see I will teach transgressions thy ways. He says my tongue will sing aloud. And he talks about how his mouth will declare praise. And then he says this, you know, I, I, I dare not, I, I'm not going to give you an offering. I'm not going to give you sacrifice because what you want right now is a broken and contrite heart. Now, now think about the significance of that. The, the, the sacrificial system was in play here at this time. David was wealthy enough to give pretty much whatever offering he could think of giving. He could have given anything he wanted, but he says, that's not what you want. He says, you, you don't need a grand gift for me. You don't need lots of sacrifices. What you need is to see my heart contrite before me. You will not despise that. Because a heart that gives gifts to God with a heart that is not contrite, God will despise that. So we can give, we can do all the service, we can do all the good things, and we can you know, have a clean life. But if our heart is not contrite to God, he will despise that. He's always more interested in the heart than the action. And that's what David is saying here. And he says, I want you to worship. So before I move on to the final point and just spend just a couple minutes there, let me just summarize this is that, you know, God expects you to be repentant, not perfect in this life. God is not surprised when you and I sin. He's not ordaining it. He's not uh, sanctioning it, but he's not surprised by it. 
He, he understands that we are weak. He understands that we are but dust. That's what David says in Psalm 103. He understands that we are, are sinners. He, he knows that he's never surprised about our sinfulness. So he's not demanding perfection out of us in this life. What he is asking us to do, though, is be repentant and contrite in heart. But, you know, crushing guilt, on the other hand, moves us away from worship. It moves us away from asking for forgiveness. It moves us away from acknowledging our need of mercy. That pride in our hearts that we say, you know what? I, I, I'm just going to do this on my own, or I'm going to clean up my own life on my own, or I'm going to just do better without the repentance part of it. That just moves us away from these things. And we all naturally want to do some form of penance and to earn God's favor back. But God has never asked us to do that because we cannot earn favor. Remember that, that, that story of Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery where they set her up and they brought her to him and, and, and they wanted to, to him to condemn her. And he says, you know, whoever's without sin cast the first stone. But he looked at her and he, says, he said to her, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. You see, he understood that people are sinners and he's working on that with us. He's not condoning it, but he's not surprised by it. He wants us to be repentant. And so God expects us to be repentant, not perfect in this life. I've got just a couple minutes left, and then uh, we'll finish it with this point here. God pays special attention, finally, to those who tremble at his word. We're back in Isaiah 66. Um, So the humble, the contrite, and those who tremble at his word. Back in Isaiah 66. You see, this is talking about reverent, reverent obedience to God's word. And reverent, reverent obedience means much more than just simply going through the motions. Now, how do I know that? Because Isaiah continues on in this text and describes someone who is not humble and contrite at heart and someone who does not tremble at his word. Look at verse 3 of Isaiah 66. He says, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word he says. What he's doing there is he's, he's bringing about, this seems foreign to our ears of some of the examples he gives here. But again, this is a sacrificial system. And he's saying, you know, someone who is just going through the motions, who offers the ox as the offering that was prescribed. But if, they, if their heart is not in, if they don't have a contrite and broken spirit and, and they're trembling at his word in reverent obedience to this, it's like you're killing a man, which was an abomination. He says, it's, it's as if you're just killing a man. You know, it's, this sacrifice is doing nothing to me, and to offer pig's blood would be an abomination. He says, you know, and so you offer uh, um, uh, this a grain offering, you might as well just offer pig blood, which is an abomination. And to the people who would first have heard this, they would have understood how terrible these things were of unjustly breaking a dog's neck and killing a man and offering pig blood and, and uh, blessing an idol, all these things. It would have been an abomination to them. And he says, you do the things that I tell you to do, but without a proper heart or with hearts that are not 
in, in, uh, in uh, broken and contrite and humble in spirit and um, uh, reverent towards my word, you do those things without that, let me tell you how it really is being received. Now think about how that, that translates to us today. We can go to church and we can read our Bibles and we can not do certain things and we can do certain things and all that stuff because we think that it's obeying God. But if we do that, not out of hearts that are devoted to Him, but just because we're just going through the motions, God is saying, that doesn't do anything. That doesn't mean anything. Because God is always concerned about our hearts, not just our actions. You see, their actions were right, but their heart was not. Jesus is going to say this to the Pharisees later on in Matthew 15. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He says, it's one thing to honor with the lips what you say, but what about your actions? It's one thing to say that we believe in God, but what do we do? Where is our heart at in those things? And so this is something that God has, he says, I'm going to pay special attention to those who tremble at his word, who are reverent and whose hearts are motivated out of love to serve him. And so I'll say this is that we must reverently obey God's word. We dare not repurpose or negotiate it with it to our own satisfaction. We live in a time where churches are very tempted. The temptation is very strong to move away from the scriptures and move away from what God is teaching and move away from how he's told us to live and, and because it, it would be more relevant or because it would be something that would bring more results possibly or something like that. But I, I'm, I'm just someone who says we've got to be people who tremble at his word. We got people say, hey, you tell us to do something a certain way, and that's the way we're going to do it. We're not going to try to repurpose it. We're not going to try to negotiate with what you say. We're not going to try to say, well, you know, it may have been sin then, but it's not sin now. We're, we're, we're not going to go through and try to, to do, you know, gymnastics with the scriptures to try to make it fit a lifestyle that we want to have. We're not going to do that because Isaiah 66 says, the one whom I will look is the one who trembles at my word, not the one who negotiates with it, not the one who twists it, not the one who moves it to a category of, well, these are helpful suggestions but this is not authoritative to our lives. No, my friend, the word of God is authoritative. We tremble at the word. We don't negotiate with it. So let me bring this to a close. I told you before that if I want you to remember the sermons, one phrase, it'd be this, that God pays special attention to the humble, the contrite, and the reverent person. You see, God is very relational. This is why he pays special attention to the humble, contrary, and reverent person. He wants the relationship with you and with me. And this is why he says, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to reveal to you what I want. I remember when uh, I was first a father and I was introduced into the sleepless nights of a baby crying. I remember uh, sometimes uh, just being disoriented and uh, trying to figure out, uh, you know, what I should do to make a baby who I will remain who will remain nameless uh, sleep. One time I was so sleep deprived that we had an agreement. My wife and I had an agreement that um, the baby would, because I was a heavy sleeper, that the baby would not sleep in bed with us. That was our choice, you know, no judgment if that's not your choice. But uh, for us, we said we're not going to do that. One day in the middle of the night, and it was my turn to, typically I did the feeding in the middle of the night. And, um, uh, you know, I, uh, I woke up and I looked next to me 
and there I saw our baby lying next to me. And I was incensed. So how in the world, why would a nook put our child when we agreed not to put this baby next to her? I, I could have rolled over and, and, and I didn't even want to think about that. And so I scooped up our child and I marched out into the living room to do the midnight feeding. And I looked and I saw sitting in the living room, my wife in the rocking chair, holding our child, feeding her. And I was confused. And I looked in my arm And I was cradling a pillow. I was completely out of it, sleep deprived. I remember those moments, those those nights of like not knowing what to do. I remember thinking, look, if, if you just tell me anything to make you stop crying, I will do it. If you want if, if you want a blanket from Nebraska, I will get in the car and drive to Nebraska and get you a blanket just because I didn't know what the child wanted. God is not like that. God does not make us wonder. God does not make us sleep deprived. God does not make us wonder what he wants and how we are to relate to him. He makes it very clear. The problem is we don't always like it. Let me close with one illustration here from God's word. In Jeremiah 31, God says this, is he for him, my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. This is the relationship that God wants with him. And where did that start? It started earlier in the chapter in verse 3 when he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. He says, I want you to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful to you, and I am going to love you. And that's why he remembers him still. But in between there... In between this verse of him declaring his everlasting love and then the verse I just showed you of him saying that he yearns, his heart yearns for him and he'll have mercy on him, there's this verse. I've heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored. For you are the Lord my God. You see, the person that God pays special attention to is the humble contrite, and those who tremble at his word. Is that you? Do we tremble at his word? Are we humble and contrite? I hope that today's discussion from this text gives you much to think and pray about. Let's pray. Father, our time is gone, and I do pray that we would take to heart what has been revealed to us in the scripture, what you have shown us from Isaiah 66 and Psalm 51 and Jeremiah 31, that what you want And you have every right to to call the shots. And so I pray that we would be people who are humble, contrite in spirit, and who tremble at your word. Not because you're always angry. No, it's because you want what's best for us and you show love and grace to us. And when we move away from that, you know that the inevitable, inevitable result is pain, heartache, disappointment, and loss. And so I pray that we would receive your gracious, loving instruction and find joy and peace that is indescribable. Like David said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Many of us may be here today that are watching online that we've lost the joy of our salvation. Lord, I pray that you'd bring us back with humble, contrite hearts and people who tremble at your words. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.
One other thing real quickly here, um, it'll only just take a second here. I just want to clarify something. You know, when I talk about God having special favor, um, that doesn't mean that our, or pay special attention to, that doesn't mean our life is going to be free of any type of pain or difficulty, right? And I don't want to communicate that. You know, in, in 2 Corinthians, we see in verse 12, Paul, or chapter 12, Paul asking for uh, this terrible affliction to be removed from him. And he says, Jesus says no, because I want to show you my grace through it. So I don't want to communicate that the special attention that God gives to the humble contrite and those who tremble at his word, they're going to have this easy life necessarily. It means that we're going to have purpose in our life and we're going to have a peace that surpasses all understanding, even if things are difficult. So I just want to make sure I made that point clear. Um, I don't feel like I, I made that point clear in the message. And so I want to make sure that was clear.